Respect, belong, thrive. We'd like to begin by acknowledging the Wathaurong people and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians on the lands in which we are recording today. We pay our respects to their elders and ancestors, acknowledging their continuing connection to this beautiful country. Hello, and thank you for listening in to this episode of Respect, Belong, Thrive. My name is Elsie Meehan. I'm a project officer with Diversity, Equity and Inclusion, and I'll be your host for this episode. On the podcast today, you'll be hearing about the amazing research being undertaken at Deakin University from lecturer Learning Futures, Danny McCarthy, and Senior Manager, Programs and Partnerships, Peter Osleski. Both Danny and Peter have been members of the I Belong at Deakin A Day in the Life Immersive Learning Experience Research Team, which through funding from UK-based organisation Advance HE, has been investigating the feasibility and scalability of using immersive technology to build a culture of belonging across a tertiary institution. Welcome, Danny. Welcome, Peter. Thank you very much for joining us today. Peter, can I begin by asking you to explain what A Day in the Life and Immersive Learning Experience is and how did it come to be? Thanks for having me, Elsie. Great to be here and great to be in conversation with yourself and Danny. A Day in Life has been a project long in the planning at Deakin. Uh, When we became aware of the Nial space, which was this amazing hub of technology, particularly immersive technology, myself and our executive director, Mel Martinelli, have often been thinking about a way that we could utilize that to enhance our work. We do a lot of training through our team with staff and students at Deakin University. And one of the things that's always a challenge with training, particularly when you have a short amount of time and you have a diverse group of people, it's very hard to be able to put those training participants into the shoes of somebody that may be experiencing discrimination, sexual harassment, victimization. So by utilizing a technology such as we have available to us in Nihal, we thought we could actually design some vignettes and some training modules utilizing lived experience and put the people inside their shoes try and do as best as we could to make them feel what those people feel, trying to provide a sense of empathy and also seeing as individuals and as a group, would that have any impact on their future experience and the organisational culture we have here at Deakin? Thanks, Pete. So you've mentioned at the top here the Nial Precinct. For our listeners, can you explain what Nial is? Absolutely. So Nial, which in the traditional language of the Wadawurrung people, means open your eyes. So the Nial Precinct is designed to be an innovative, creative and immersive learning space. So interconnected spaces working in tandem with each other to be able to host classes for students, professional development opportunities for staff, and to bring in external visitors to Deakin to help them experience the space. There is the actual immersive learning space itself, which previously was called the Imaginarium, which is a 360 degree room with technology on the walls where you can experience the module that we've created in diversity, equity, and inclusion. There is also a room adjacent to that called the Think Tank, which is another circular room, which has been specially designed with the acoustics to ensure that everybody sitting at any point along the circle in that room has an equal footing in terms of their ability to speak and be heard. And for the purposes of the technology that we've created, it is to be used as part of a facilitation session pre and post training. And then there's also a amphitheater space out in the main room uh, in the Nial precinct, which is used for events, promotion opportunities, and more of a TED Talk type space. And so those all work interchangeably with each other. And in future iterations we plan on doing of these modules, we'll look to utilize all of those parts of the precinct. So you've created these three modules collectively called A Day in the Life to be shown in the space. Could you explain to me what the videos entail? 
Yeah, absolutely. So we created three modules. With the modules, we wanted to try and capture an intersectional experience of staff and students at Deakin. A lot of the data used for these modules, which the information we created them, so the factual evidence and the lived experience, was created by real stories at Deakin. Often we've intertwined information we've gathered from outside of Deakin, from places like the Human Rights Commission, from real complaint data from other universities and our own university. And obviously, we're heavily influenced by people with lived experience of those scenarios. So the three modules we've created are an instance of sexual harassment in the workplace. We've created an experience of discrimination from a transgender staff member. And we've also created an experience of racial discrimination of an Indigenous student. And so, as I said, each of those are scripted modules that we'll be taking people through. And each of those experiences has a bystander intervention at the end of that discrimination where we're trying to have a learning experience for staff or students to say, if you notice this happening, what would you do? You said you've drawn on evidence and real-life data to create these scenarios. Why was it important to add the voices of those with lived experience into the narratives? It's a day in the life. It's the real experiences of people that have unfortunately experienced these, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in a learning environment, or whether it's in their day-to-day lives as they go about the things outside of work or study. Training experiences can be very fraught when creating this type of content, so we're very careful to make sure that it was evidence-based content creation. And checks were put in place right throughout the creation of these modules and post-creation of these modules. And part of the outcomes of these research will be, we'll get lots of feedback on these as we put groups of people through, and that's a great thing. Something we intend on doing into the future is creating more of these and really building on that intersectional experience of our Deakin community. You've said here that you intend to use these videos as part of training. It's quite novel to use immersive technology for DEI training. What was the rationale for creating these scenarios as 360 degree vignettes? Thanks, Elsie. Yeah, so when we actually started discussing what the practical use of these modules would be as part of everyday business or study at Deakin, we really wanted these to be a primer for future training. A lot of diversity, equity and inclusion training that many listeners may have done themselves or you may that may be offered at people's workplaces often goes into a lot of detail and it goes into some quite serious and heavy content very early on in the training. People don't have a lot of time. Often we're delivering these trainings in one hour or a 45-minute period. And when you're dealing with a subject matter such as discrimination, sexual harm and sexual harassment, the content dives in very quickly. We wanted to create a primer so people could come as an individual or with their work group, experience these modules, put themselves in the shoes of people that have lived experience of these things that happen in workplaces, and then enroll in future training, which will go into a lot more detail about the why, about legislation, about what you can do as an active bystander, which is offered in the rest of our diversity, equity, and inclusion suite of training. Things like unconscious bias, bystander awareness training, they're going to go into that with more knowledge than they may have, and also more empathy. And Pete, who is the intended audience for these videos? Our primary audience is Deacon staff. Deacon staff are a very diverse group of people in and of themselves. There are Deacon staff who have a professional role, who may not have much interaction with students, and a lot of their interactions are with other colleagues. The vast majority of Deakin staff being a university may be involved with teaching and learning, offering services to students and supports for students, and they have a significant impact on the lives and experiences of those students while they're at Deakin University. So whilst the primary audience is staff, there are many secondary audiences which will be impacted by these modules. And one of the really interesting things as we've brought a number of groups through NIAL to show them these modules since we've developed them and through the research, these concepts have a lot of reach beyond the Deakin community, but to the broader Geelong community in particular. And we've had a lot of external groups come through that have been quite profoundly impacted by the content. And I think being able to, we're in a very 
privileged position as a university to have access to this sort of technology. So we have an obligation, I suppose, for lack of a better word, to share that with community groups um, and members of the community uh, more broadly. You've brought in the concept of empathy here and mentioned that you hope that these videos will create a sense of empathy in viewers. I'm wanting to add a wider lens onto that thought and ask what place do you think empathy has in building a positive culture within an organisation? It's a really interesting question, and I think it's one of the concepts we need to tease out more after this research is finalised and released. Obviously, I'll let Danny talk in more detail to the research itself, but I think there's going to be a lot of power in bringing groups, particularly work groups of colleagues through this space or groups of students in a study group as part of a course, because I think the empathy is for the person standing next to you and the empathy is for the person who may have lived experience of these concepts that you don't know that. If somebody tells you their story face-to-face, it's very easy to empathize with somebody because they're telling you that, but we're trying to create a sense of empathy and care for people at your organization that you may not know have these lived experiences that may not be in your immediate friendship network. So you're not able to maybe understand these concepts as well as others that have lived it. Uh, So I think there's going to be a lot of power in bringing work groups through and having pre and post facilitated discussions to actually tease out these concepts uh, and then obviously get them to dive deeper with the trainings that we offer at Deakin as well. These modules have been created under the I Belong program at Deakin. One of the aims of this initiative is to formalise the principle of belonging. Danny and Pete, I'm wanting to just get in your own words, what is belonging? What does it look like? And what is the importance of creating belonging in an organisation such as Deakin? I'll I'll um I'll pipe up and say that I would like to really think about it as a as a holistic thing. So belonging is the interaction between people and a and a community between the sort of environmental, social, and psychosocial um, relations between people. So it's it's a more than human experience. Belonging it encompasses the buildings that we inhabit and the ways that we communicate technologically. It's mediated. Um, it's person to person. But sometimes and more often than not, there's a lot going on between that relation between a person and their university. So belonging in higher education is a very, very big idea and it encompasses a lot. But what it comes down to is a person's feeling of confidence and homeliness and feeling of of safety within that space and feeling they have a right to be there and they have a right to do their business there in safety. And and it's not just safety, but I think un- underlying it all is that feeling of liberty walking into a place and feeling that you're part of it and it's part of you and you take it beyond the walls of the university into the world as well, into work. That's great, Danny. I like that concept of safety. And I think to take that even a step further is to enable the feeling of safety. For me, I've always thought about it, particularly with these modules at my front of mind, is about connection and being able to allow participants of this training to feel safe to come in and ask questions that they may not necessarily have always felt comfortable asking, to put themselves in an environment where they may initially feel uncomfortable to be able to create an environment of safety for the other people in the Deakin community. Often the people who do diversity, equity and inclusion training at Deakin are people that have done a lot of our training before. They may have a personal interest in diversity, equity and inclusion outside of their work. And it's the people that may not usually come to our training that we want to put through these modules who will be able to help create a safe and belonging environment for everybody at Deakin. By being able to create a connection to those lived experiences that members of the Deakin community have, creating a physical and psychologically safe 
safe environment. A larger proportion of the university population that can do that, the greater sense of belonging, regardless of what your identity factors may be. Yeah, and I think human connection is where it comes to, isn't it, Pete? It's very much around that feeling of belongingness, that we share values, that we share an understanding of behaviours, attitudes, beliefs, and that we can speak about things in in really confident ways that are empowering. And those there are broader definitions of belonging, but these are the these are the kinds of definitions that we're working with in relation to this research project. On that note, Danny, I might segue into talking about the research project you've conducted at Deakin, which is looking at how this immersive technology can be used to create a culture of belonging at Deakin. Can you tell me a little bit about your work? We were really responding to two questions in the research, and I suppose the first question was, is it affective? Is it going to enhance people's ability to be custodians of of a culture of belonging out there in the wild, in the in the university space? Will it be effective? Will it change their attitudes, behaviours and beliefs and maybe empower them to intervene perhaps on behalf of somebody that they don't know, which is quite a, a tall order. You know, it takes a lot of empathy and human connection to feel confident and safe to do that in our community. So very empowering. Does it do that? Does it do what it says on the tin? If it does, which we believe it does, then we'd really have to be looking at is this scalable? So how how do we get this out to a lot of people? If we really feel this is impactful and this is effective, how do we make it broadly available? And like Pete's saying, reach those broader communities beyond even what we set out to do within the Deakin world. And Danny, you received funding from UK-based organisation Advance HE. Deakin was the first international institution to be awarded funding from this pool. Yeah, so I I suppose you can't say anything without acknowledging our beautiful funding body, Advance HE, who we are part of a very fabulous cluster of four different universities looking at uh, different ways to support inclusive communities. It's called the Collaborative Development Fund with Advance HE. So we got a little research grant, very small one, for a very small feasibility study. So our little piece of it was looking at how you build belonging in an immersive reality environment. And that's, that was really where we began with our research project. That's great. Congratulations. So how did you go about measuring and capturing the impact of these immersive experiences on culture? Yeah, so we were coming at it a few different ways. So obviously, we're really interested in what the experience of people who were attended a day in the life itself. Um, So we had our research participants that were experienced participants, we called them. But we also had designer participants. So we really wanted to get a perspective of what the designers' hopes and ambitions for for their design of the learning experience. What, What did they want it to do? What did they hope that it would achieve? And then we also included, because the physical presence of Nial and the content and the technology was such important material presences in the study that that they became a participant as well, a site-specific participant. Okay, so that's interesting. Um, Why was the space such an important aspect? 
when you read about 360 degree immersive environments and you engage with different literature about it, it feels like a very flat experience the way that people describe it. And I think the biggest thing that I had to wrap my brain around is I don't think I really understood what the Nial experience was and the consequence of it as an experience until I was there. And I suddenly thought this is a very complex environment and the physical, the physicality of Nial can't be underestimated as part of the experience. And the fact that it is geographically located and that you drive your car to a car park and you walk through the university and you've got knowledge and learning in the library one side and cafes and university life and you're you walk into this purpose-built space and you're suddenly transformed in university life and you're in a theater 360 degree immersive reality but then the technology is another layer So you're in there and then there's the 360 degree technology and you start to really realize that there is a very complex and material set of physical location and virtual location coinciding. And that is important. Amazing. So you've got these three types of research participants. You've got these two research questions you're looking to answer. How did you bring it all together in your study design? To answer the research question around how affected and moved were people by this experience, we had our experience participants and the site-specific participant day in life. To answer the scalability question, we really did bring together the designer participants, the site-specific participant, and then we also brought in the experience participants. To answer the first question, we were really looking at what the experience was at data point one, which was just, you know, one to two days after people had been through Nial. And then we checked in with them again at what we were calling data point two, which was two weeks later. With the feasibility, scalability aspect of the study, we really had another round of interviews with the designer participants. And we also used a a method called site writing, where it's about critique of space by writing in the space and writing in a very detailed account of how the space works. It's like a diarising, almost like an autoethnography for a site. Um, So yeah, site writing is used in architectural critique and in art critique. And it felt like it was a really good way of making tangible the sort of the intangible aspects of the Nial space. Uh, Amazing. So tell me, Danny, what did you find? I think it's really important that we remember this is just a little feasibility, scalability study. So it's quite small. So let's put it into perspective. We had 12 participants. What was really interesting was that we had a very limited demographic It was. And, you know, they were all Deacon staff members. They were all women, mostly, and they were all over the age of 25. And so we could have looked at this as as like, oh, no, (laughs) what are we going to draw out of this? But it actually turns out through the data that these were um, inclusive practitioners. So not only were we up against it with a very limited participants in scope, but we were also dealing with people that knew this subject matter very well. Well, it turns out that they were the perfect participants. You couldn't you couldn't have had a research design better than than with these people because they were very rigorous. Um, they came in with deep knowledge about inclusive practices by and large, not all of them, um, which was great because we could we could look at modulations in the way that people were responding to the Nial experience. But I think I I say this with kind of a glee because when they came in and they felt like they knew what they were going to experience, they they felt like they had a good handle of the subject matter, those participants that had that, boy, two weeks later, did we see them affected. So they were in their heads 
just shortly after their Nial experience, but by golly, did it reach their hearts two weeks later. And it really was a very strong finding. Mm, right. Could you elaborate, Danny, on what that change looked like from data point one to data point two within those two weeks? So they were really talking in terms of critique of the experience of what the production value was like in the in the short thereafter moments. And they were talking about problems with aspect ratios and sound and where they should have been in the room and perhaps that should have been a different scenario. It was very fascinating that by two weeks later, we were having people commenting things like, boy, it was powerful. I haven't been able to get it out of my head. And talking about gestures of the characters, little gestures of of embodied responses people were having, and they were recalling it two weeks later with such such detail and such heart that you couldn't miss that they were deeply affected and transformed by this experience. The two weeks is just, um, it's really interesting. Do you have any theories, Danny, as to why this may have occurred? No, I I don't think I can, and I don't think I should. I think that that's that's really a question for for more research. I, and again, I suppose it it speaks to kind of the scale of our our research that we were doing. Um, we were really just seeking to see if something happened. And I, I'll be honest, I was just ex- and I think we all were actually, Pete and Elsie. I think at the beginning, I think we were all expecting people would be affected by this. I think we we kind of knew it. Um, what we weren't expecting was was how it intensified over time. And there was this sort of optimal moment came two weeks later that I, I was a little bit surprised about, to be honest. And I, I don't think I have any theories about that. And I don't think that I should. I just think that we we registered it. We saw it. We have to respect that it was a small small sort of study and a small narrow group of participants but any good feasibility study should should really guide the way that there is something something happened and I'd like to know what that was. Yeah absolutely and you did mention that this participant sample did have some knowledge of inclusive practice already. Can you tell me what impact do you think that that had on the research? So we're talking about people that that understand concepts like belonging. They're actually working in spaces, and and like I, I would also say that we did have some practitioners come through, some professional staff and academic staff that were not inclusive practitioners, uh, but the majority of them really did have a very solid understanding. What we found with those people is they were really deeply affected by it in unexpected ways. They were definitely going to take it back into their practice. I think the um, the reality of the experience was something, again, that unfolded over time, that it became more real, you know, two weeks later in, in their minds and in their hearts and in their bodies. And I think that there was something of an urgency that was really picked up on on pretty much everyone two weeks later, you could really feel there was a sense of, I need to do something about this. This is social justice. This is ethics. But I also think we need to think about the ethics of care for these people. If, we, if it's having such a profound effect on people who are already in the space, what are the ethics of this experience when these are people who are not traditionally aligned to inclusive principles, inclusive values? Like, what does this mean? How do we care for people and taking them through such a transformative experience before, during and after? Yeah, absolutely, Danny. So with research question one, we saw that there was a change in affect in that two-week period. Just thinking in terms of research question two, does this experience have a possibility of being feasible and scalable at an organisation such as Deakin that is hybrid, multi-campus, multi-city? 
again, it's that two weeks, isn't it? You know, we, we come back, keep coming back to that after two weeks, we see a real turn to action. And I don't, I don't know that that was necessarily what happened when people first came out of the experience that they were actually, maybe they were still processing. Uh, I don't, I'll speculate that they probably were. And then two weeks later, it had turned to actually initiating and doing something. And, and that is what a day in the life is all about is empowering people and saying, not only can you understand the lived experience of others, but that you are empowered that you you can actually intervene on their behalf and you can do something about it. That's a very powerful aspect of it. What we still need to untangle is how this works at scale. So we know it works. We know that it's, you know, it's doing something that people want to intervene, help, curriculum design, um, create inclusive in, and experiences of belonging. But at scale, it's very interesting because we're not going to have the participants that we had for this study. We're going to have the broader community of staff and students at Deakin and maybe even beyond Deakin. They may not have any experience of these concepts. So it is, it's very complex because we don't know who's coming in. We don't know what biases, what experiences that they bring into the Nial experience, but we do know that they are going to be impacted, transformed and affected for a very long time afterwards. And we found that in a lot of the the interviews two weeks later that, that a lot of the participants were really kind of a little taken aback by just how much it had slid under their radar. And I think that that's a very important ethical point that we need to think about. You also take in the idea of realism and you start to think, if it's this impactful for people, then how how would you even create an accessible alternative for somebody? What would that even look like? And how would you do that? Because of course, not everybody's going to be able to experience Nial and not everybody is going to be able to experience 360 degree immersive technology. And that might be for medical reasons. That just might be a personal preference that they don't want to experience anything like that. So there's an equity issue here that if we're going to say that this is our model and this is our scale and this is how we promote belonging at Deakin, we certainly must think about alternatives for people, alternative experience and how do, how do we make sure people don't miss out on it. Mm, absolutely, Danny. From the perspective as a researcher, do you have any thoughts about these considerations going forward? When we think about the cost of rolling out something like this at scale, as we've mentioned before, you know, there is an ethics and there's the accessibility of it. And then you start to bring in scale, which adds another layer of complexity. Then there's some real questions about how do we deliver this experience? Now, there's how do we deliver it at Nial, where people have to drive to our Warren Ponds campus and they have to park and they have to walk through the university and they come to the precinct and they experience a day in the life and they come out and they can go to a dialogue room and they can debrief and they can have trained practitioners. But when we're thinking about scale, we're probably thinking more about VR headsets. Now, this is a very different quality of experience and we really need to understand what that means if suddenly you could have someone in their bedroom with a VR headset on going into their day in life experience. And then how do we wrap around all of those ethics of care and how do we make it accessible for those people? So these are things, again, I think we have more questions than we do answers, but I think we definitely have given a really good grounding to kind of unpack and create solid training and solid experiences with the day in life. Yeah, absolutely, Danny. Pete, I'd like to bring you back into the conversation here. I'd be interested in your thoughts about these findings. Was it surprising that these modules had had such an effective impact on participants at two weeks? And what do you think that these findings mean for the implementation of a day in the life going forward? 
I think with the subject matter that we are dealing with in the production of these modules, but also the subject matter that our division deals with on a day-to-day basis training, there is a lot of considerations around safety, psychological safety in particular, ongoing support, and a consideration to the right way to present this type of content. So it's about providing people with the opportunity to ask questions and acknowledging that we have very highly trained staff who are not only presenting, but who are also touching base with participants in that training after, as you said, Danny said earlier, two weeks after the experience people had was very different to the experience they had on the day. Um, I deliver child safety training at Deakin. Often I'll get one or two people that will come up to me after that training and disclose incident that's happened in their life. More often than not, that will be two or three weeks after the training. So it's about considering what impact the content is going to have on people, but also acknowledging that this content is derived from lived experience of people at Deakin. It exists at Deakin, and we need to acknowledge that in order to try and create an environment where this discrimination, victimization, sexual harassment does not occur, we need to acknowledge that it does occur at the moment and we need to build people's capacity on how to deal with this type of subject matter expertise and how to support people that are experiencing it. And so multiple considerations, but it's a very front of mind thing for us as we develop this type of content. I think the scalability can go in a variety of different directions with this, and that's what makes it so exciting. We have restrictions in terms of what we can do. Obviously, we don't have Netflix-style budgets to create amazing shows like Heartbreak High, where they have amazing lived experience of people. So we have a financial restriction as to what we can do. We also have organizational realities about working in a university. So we have to do things which have a relatively short timeline in terms of their delivery. Having said that, though, one of the things I'm thinking about is being able to involve particularly our Deacon students more in the creation of content and the production of content, being able to use different parts of Deacon, where we have subject matter expertise to bring them into that content creation as well. We have some of the people that have been involved in the research that Danny mentioned who are inclusion practitioners, people that work in our safety community space, being able to bring in some of that knowledge to both enrich the content, but also provide a learning experience for maybe some students who are involved in the creation of that. And as I said at the top, I think as we've gone through this process, thinking about the university's role in the community is a big question that's probably sitting off to the side for me as well. Deakin's a regional university. It has an extremely large presence in the communities that it exists, not just in Geelong, in Warrnambool, but also in the parts of Melbourne that we operate. And also now that we are a university like all others that have shifted online, we have a very large footprint. And I think whatever our organizational culture is and whatever values we ask our Deakin community to exist within when they're here, it's going to have a very large impact on the second and third connections of those people and their families and friends. And so I think there's some really interesting things about how we think about that going forward, which is a very large scale. So you you can imagine the excitement, but also trepidation about what the next steps look like. Oh, absolutely. And Pete, looking back on this process, do you have any learnings that you'd like to share? And also looking forward, what is diversity, equity and inclusion looking to do next in this space? I suppose there's two aspects I think of that in terms of, and one is the technology itself. Um, We didn't utilize the technology available to us to the nth degree in terms of what we could do as part of the production. Due to budget and many other things, we shot relatively simple vignettes in terms of stories. The content was very powerful, but being able to utilize the immersive technology to place the viewer into different environments as the active participant in these modules is a really interesting concept that people with much more creative minds than myself could do a lot of things with. 
I think that though becomes really important with other subject matter, which we can utilize this for. So I've had a number of conversations since around concepts like coercive control and being able to show power and being able to put a six foot seven white male who has an enormous physical presence that may not be aware of that enormous physical presence in day-to-day life because that's simply that person's lived experience, being able to use this technology to put persons like that into a space where they may, to the best extent possible, being able to understand the lived experience of somebody who might have feelings of safety or, or unsafety around a person like that. And, and a lot of those concepts related to gender equality are somewhere we'd like to take future modules like this and also around uh, particularly lived experience of neurodiverse people, both staff and students in the Deakin environment and some of those sensory considerations that organizations, universities, workplaces need to be aware of. I think there's some concepts we'd love to explore next. Yeah, absolutely. Exciting. Looking forward to seeing what happens next in the space. Thank you so much, Pete and Danny, for joining me today to talk about the amazing work that's taking place at Deakin. Pete, if any of the listeners want to get in touch with yourself or diversity, equity and inclusion to talk about the modules or the UNIAL space, what's the best way to contact you? The easiest way to get in contact with not only myself, but our team more broadly, is if you're listening to this podcast and you've come across this project as a result of interacting with our research team through either Advance HE or through a conference presentation, I'd suggest to get in contact with the research team through those channels. Otherwise, jump onto the Deacon website, look for the Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Division. My contact details are on there and so are the other members of our team. And Danny, if someone out there would like to talk to you about the research, how can they get in touch? Yes, so I work um, for Deakin Learning Futures. I'm lecturer of inclusive education. You can contact me through the inclusive education website at Deakin and that's my email and you can get to me anytime. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Danny and Peter, for joining me today to discuss the work that has been taking place at Deakin. Thank you. Thanks very much, Elsie. Thanks, Danny. Pleasure as always. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you very much to Danny and Peter for joining me today to discuss the work that has been taking place at Deakin. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. And if you would like to hear from some of our other colleagues, students and community partners, you can browse our previous recordings of Respect, Belong, Thrive. Thank you very much for listening.